following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right. Good evening, everyone. Glad that you're here and participating with us uh, this evening. First Chronicles, please, as we read in our scriptures, First Chronicles and chapter 15. Remember, the ark was going to come to Jerusalem, but uh, had to take a little stop off because there was a problem along the way, a problem of disobedience and lack of attention to God's direction in how to move the ark by carrying. And now we're going to return to that little journey from a couple of chapters ago and come to 1 Chronicles and chapter 15. We can't quite get away from the names. We're going to keep working through those. First uh, Chronicles 15, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. And David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Then David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites and the sons of Kohath, Uriel the chief, and 120 of his brethren, of the sons of Merari, Asaiah the chief, and 220 of his brethren, of the sons of Gershom, Joel the chief, and 130 of his brethren, of the sons of Elizaphan, Shemaiah the chief, and 200 of his brethren, of the sons of Hebron, Eliel the chief, and 80 of his brethren, of the sons of Uziel, Aminadab the chief, and 112 of his brethren. And David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. And he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. So the priests and Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. By the way, just a note there on verse 13, good advice. Consult God about the proper order, the proper way to do things, what uh, you should do in your life. Otherwise, you could well make a mess of things. Yes, verse 15. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. There's the correction from their previous mistake of putting it on a cart. Verse 16. Then David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be singers accompanied by instruments of music, stringed instruments, harps, and cymbals by raising the voice with resounding joy. So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, and of his brethren, Asaph, the son of Barakiah, and of their brethren, the sons of Merari, Ethan, the son of Cushiah, and with them their brethren, one second, one, sorry, of the second rank, Zechariah, Ben, Jaaziel, Shemiramot, Jehiel, Uni, Eliah, Beniah, Maasiah, Mattathiah, Eliphele, uh, Miknaleh, Obed-Edom, and Jeiel, the gatekeepers, the singers, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan, who were to sound the cymbals of bronze, Zechariah, Aziel, Shemiramot, uh, 
Jehiel, Uni, Eliab, Asiah, and Beniah with strings, according to Alamot, Mattathiah, Eliphelah, Mikneah, Obed-Edom, Jael, and Azariah to direct with harps on the Sheminit. Sheminiah, leader of the Levites, was instructor in charge of the music because he was skillful. Barakiah and Elkanah were doorkeepers for the ark. Shebaniah, ja- Joshaphat, Nethanel, Amasai, Zechariah, Beniah, and Eliezer, the priests, were to blow the trumpets before the ark of God, and Obed-Edom and Jehiah, the doorkeepers for the ark. So David, the elders of Israel, and the captains over thousands went up, sorry, went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And so it was when God helped the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who bore the ark, the singers, and Chaniah, the music master, with the singers. David also wore a linen ephod. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn, with trumpets and with cymbals, making music with stringed instruments and harps. And it happened as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David that Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart. That's kind of an odd reaction, I would think, to that, but that's what happened. So we'll leave that there for now and pick up uh, the next time. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles then as we think of our study in Matthew chapter 11 this morning, and we'll just carry on with that to some extent here and try to finish the first segment of the chapter. We spent some time this morning in Matthew chapter 11. We looked at the background of John's imprisonment, and we saw that John the Baptist had been abused, as it were, by Herod by putting him into prison because he didn't like the righteous stand that was taken by John regarding the issue of marriage. And it wasn't some uh, huge, uh, what can I say, complicated doctrinal issue. It was very simple. You cannot take your brother-in-law's wife from him and have her for yourself. Um, It was uh, purely uh, lust that uh, operated uh, this way in them, and they wanted to uh, change spouses and so they did that, in, not in accordance with God's law. And uh, obviously, John knew the law very well. If he said that it was unlawful, it was unlawful. And whether you may understand that or not, in our kind of lackadaisical society where anybody can divorce anybody and anybody can marry anybody, uh, we might have lost some sense of propriety about that, but uh, John the Baptist had not done that. So we saw some of that background, and we saw what it was like uh, in terms of the length of time for John to be languishing in prison, uh, sitting there for perhaps a year, more or less, waiting to be executed, basically. What an awful feeling. No termination date, no certainty, no anything, just dread. And this drove him into despair as he waited there. And so he asked the Lord in verses 2 and 3, what... Uh, is going on here. Who Are you the coming one, the one that I thought you were, or is there another one that we're looking for? 
in, uh, in really a sense of despair, despondency, depression. John was in a, a bad way, in a mental state, if you will, a spiritual state. And so we saw that inquiry that he made. And then we saw Jesus answer to John in three brief verses, verses 4 through 6, in which he said, go and tell John which you, things which you hear and see. And so Jesus worked miracles there. They, uh, that, that is to show the disciples of John so they could be eyewitnesses to what was going on. And what were they to tell John? They were to tell him that blind people are seeing, lame are walking, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And they might have sprinkled in a few other things as well in there. And then he said, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. A general blessing, but I think especially related to John the Baptist, who wasn't offended, but he was confused and he was in despair about what was going on. But we, we saw that he had quite a weakness, and Jesus responded to that weakness by, by telling him, look at what the Lord is doing. Look at how it fulfills Scripture. Look at how it's connected back to the Old Testament. Uh, the answer to John's question, yes, Jesus is the one, it's just a matter of timing, and that had everybody thrown off. Everybody uh, was thrown off by the timing issue. The other disciples were, certainly the zealots were, um, even in the book of Acts. They asked the Lord, remember the question they asked him, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they were a little bit confused about how all this was going to work together. And we have a better vantage point because we can see what God was doing through his son was offering the kingdom, then retracting the offer because he said, you know, the, the kingdom of God is taken from you and it's going to be given to a generation that will bear the fruits of it, a, a, a family, a, a nation, a future generation, in fact, that would bear the fruits of that uh, thing, of that kingdom. And uh, so he offered it, took it back, establishes a work among the Gentiles in the book of Acts, calling out for himself a people for his name. Uh, Peter, James, John, Paul, uh, well, really not. I guess I would say put James out of there. We have a little issue with James back in uh, Acts chapter 12, unfortunately for him. But um, the, the, the rest of the apostles recognize that God is calling out people from the Gentiles. And with that, the words of the prophets agreed. Amos uh, chapter 9 talks about how God's going to raise up the tabernacle of David that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And so uh, they find no contradiction in God's calling out Gentiles for himself in this age, and that's what he's doing. <clears throat> and so what was, what was mysterious was that God is going to establish a work called the church in this present age. Sometimes people get confused about that. They, they say, well, look, um, you know, the Bible in the Old Testament talks uh, about Gentiles, you know, and being involved in God's program and so on. And then they say, well, in Ephesians chapter 3, when it talks about the mystery being revealed, a mystery of the Jew and the Gentile brought together into one body, they say, well, that was already revealed in the Old Testament. No, it was not. The work of God among the Gentiles and that Gentiles could be saved, was revealed in the Old Testament. You see Isaiah, for example. Um, Jesus would be, the Messiah would be a light, not only to Israel, but a light to whom? 
a light to the Gentiles. You see that, that there is that prediction in the Old Testament, but there's never any indication that there's going to be a body church where you have Jews and Gentiles coming together. That's a new thing revealed through Paul and the other apostles, their disciples, and and that is made clear throughout the text of the epistles. And not to make too big of a deal about that, but just to be precise, we want to make sure we understand there's a difference between a prophecy of Gentiles being saved and a prophecy of what body or group or organism they would be part of once they were saved. Those are two different things that are revealed in in the scriptures, one in the Old Testament and one had to wait until the New. Well, so John didn't understand that timing issue of all of this, and so it got a little bit, you know, concerning for him because he was like, what's going on here? So um, we noticed then spent some time with a similar episode of depression in the prophet. I called it prophetic depression prophetic depression, and that was in Elijah, remember? He uh, defeated the, he didn't really defeat, God defeated the prophets on, the, on Mount Carmel, and, uh, but then he was threatened, his life was threatened by Queen Jezebel, so he runs for his life, and, and he's like, look it, I'm, over, I'm done, I'm finished, just, just, just knock me off right now, Lord, just get it over with now, better for me to die just like my forefathers. And God said, no, you're not done yet. In fact, what happened to Elijah in the end was not that he died, but what? What does that old spiritual say? I need somebody to start singing that for me. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that old spiritual. It talks about Elijah being caught up into heaven on a chariot. Yeah, well... Uh, so he wasn't destined to die. He was destined to be caught up into heaven. But he had a few more things that he had to do. And so God fed him, rested him, sent him on his way, met with him, spoke with him, uh, taught him uh, that he had some assignments to do. He had to anoint a new king, another new king, a new prophet, and, uh, and carry on with the work. And to know that there were still 7,000 people in Israel who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Even today, my friends, there are thousands upon thousands of people named after the name of Christ, Christians, true believers, not not yada yada believers, but true ones, you know, not just talkers, but doers, livers, uh, who, who live out the faith. And there are many, many of them across our immediate region <clears throat> and across the United States and across the world. Precious believers. Um, I've met some in other countries as I've traveled very in a limited fashion and enjoy that so much, seeing others that love the Lord Jesus. You know they're your brothers and sisters. You might not even be able to speak the same language, but you can communicate with them. You've had that blessing, haven't you, brother? Uh, the, the, uh, the greetings that you receive, the spirit that you sense in these people is the same as the Holy Spirit that you have, and it's a delight. <clears throat> we kind of get isolated into our own, especially with COVID, you know, we've been isolated amongst our you know, it's, it's like our four walls, and uh, maybe we have a little window out into the world and, you know, the news and the computer and, uh, and what. That's about it, right? Uh, we get out to the store once in a while. That was not so, not so much now, but before, and we get this kind of isolated feeling. Not exactly like being in prison like John was, but 
uh, you can imagine, total confinement, total confinement for over a year perhaps, and plus all the other dynamics of this situation going on. So Jesus then, at the end of this, once he's taught John what to do, you know, look at the work of God, go about doing the work of God. He, uh, God told Elijah, uh, notice what God is doing in the world, take a step forward for God, any, any, any step. You know, like I said, crack your Bible open if you're down and just start reading. I don't know what to do. Okay, pastor told me, the scriptures indicate I could do something like open the Bible, start reading. Call somebody, encourage them, ask them for help, pray with them, do something. Okay, we looked at all that this morning, some practical steps for us. Now Jesus explains to the crowd about John the Baptist. So in reality, like the, the, the kind of high-level outline of the chapter is almost something like this. First, John's question about Jesus Second, Jesus' estimate of who John is. And then third, the crowd's estimate of who John was or is. So we're looking at, at the John the Baptist in particular now, especially in verses 7 through 19. And let's just read a few of those verses to get a running head start here. It says, As they departed, that is John's disciples, his helpers, his messengers, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Just notice briefly, the Lord does not say he's the greatest of the prophets. It says, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. He's like the greatest of people, not just prophets. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Verse 12, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned for you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. I might add, too, you know, that the the Pharisees not only said Jesus was a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but in John, or sorry, John, in Matthew 9:34, they said this man cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. So they were saying that John has a demon, and they're saying Jesus basically has a demon. I mean, it's it's crazy the kind of things that they're saying, but but they did, and that's what the Lord is is criticizing them for. 
Now, John would undoubtedly be uh, encouraged by the report that he heard, like Elijah before him was encouraged that 7,000 men had not capitulated to Baal. Just like you would probably be, you know, encouraged to know how many people have not bowed the knee to the abortion uh, industry, how many have not bought into the transgender ideology, how many have, now those are just political matters, how about the number of thousands of souls who are true believers in Christ, if you just had kind of a little window into the true statistics, it might, you know, it might at one time, at, at the same time encourage you, but also discourage you. <laughs> because you see relative to the mass of humanity what's going on. Well, <clears throat> even though this was an encouraging message to John, God does not guarantee a soft landing for any of us in this life, does he? No guarantee of a soft landing, no golden parachute. We're not guaranteed to be raptured from this place. We all wish that we could be, but it hasn't happened yet. John was still going to be martyred because he was a man of God, and Herod was a vile king. Now, what Jesus is going to say here is actually going to look like a pre-eulogy. Usually, we reserve eulogies for after somebody's gone, right? Here is going to be a eulogy almost for somebody before they go away, and here it's the baptizer, John who is going to be murdered. The Lord asked the crowds, great way to engage a crowd, ask a question. I thought about doing that this evening. I was going to say, now what was it that we talked about this morning? And just wait for you to fill me in a few details. See if you were awake this morning. Say, oh, quick, I'm going to go back in my notes and look. Well, maybe you don't have any notes. Uh-oh, now you're in trouble. Um, a great way to engage the crowd. He asked them, Starting in verse 7, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? That's where John was, out in the wilderness, the wilderness of Judea, out baptizing where there was water. Did you go see a reed shaken by the wind? What does that mean? Have you ever thought of that, a reed shaken by the wind? Well, what this means is, this, was this a man who was shaken easily? by the fear of others? Did he blow to and fro with every popular thought, every wind of doctrine, every new idea? You know, did, was, he, was, he, was he like a politician? <laughs> no, he was not. He was not blown about this way and that way and a reed shaken in the wind. He was... And then, and then the Lord carries on with it. So in other words, he was a man of stability. He was a man who knew what was right and what was wrong, and he stood on that, immovable. Then he asks a second time, but what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are, as, are in king's houses. In other words, was he a soft man? Was he a man of royalty, a man of wealth, a man of renown, a man of fame? No, the crowd would have to say not, not that either. He was dressed not in soft clothing, but in rough clothing. Can you imagine wearing a garment of unrefined camel's hair? Talk about scratchy. 
I would think. I mean, you know, think of an old, old woolen garment. If you wore it next to your skin, how that would feel. Not like the stuff today. You know, you see the ads on the, on the, the TV or whatever today or, or the computer, and they talk about, you know, wool isn't like what it used to be. And it's, you know, made in these fancy machines and combined with other fabrics, and it's dirty and it's warm and it keeps your feet dry if it's in a sock and, and it's, you know, it's not scratchy and all that. They didn't have all that stuff back then. He has a garment of camel's hair, not smooth clothing. He's girt about the middle with a leather belt. He didn't eat the fare of Herod and his courtiers. He ate locusts and wild honey. He was a forerunner of Jesus, a picture not only of what you think in your mind, but also of what the world thinks of as a crazed prophet. Have you ever seen a a modern uh, rendition of, you know, who who Moses was in a movie or or a documentary or something, or a, a modern rendition of this? And they portray John as a real, like, or Moses even, or actually, I think a better one, Noah. They portray them as crazed individuals that look wild and they're not, like, functionally with it. You know, they're out in the wilderness and they're just weirdos. I don't think John was a weirdo. But the people of God can, to the world, seem to be kind of weird. You know what I mean? Because we're so different. We think so differently than the world. And the world just doesn't understand. And so he becomes the picture of a crazed prophet as well as the forerunner of Christ. You know, people thought Noah was insane too. What do you mean the world's going to be flooded? Why are you building this boat in the middle of the, you know, dry land? What are you doing? You are insane. Well, they didn't, they didn't live long enough to propagate that view very long, did they? No, or whatever it was, 100 years that he took to construct that ark and to gather those animals, and then they were all wiped out. They thought he was crazy until they thought he wasn't crazy. People thought John the Baptist was crazy too, but maybe they found out that he wasn't. And I'm afraid that that same thing's going to happen. You know, people are going to think God doesn't exist until they see he exists. And uh, better to see it now, my friends, than to see it too late. Then Jesus asks a third question, verse number nine. But what did you go out to see? So he has this kind of threefold repetition. What did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a prophet? Yes. I say to you, and more than a prophet, more than a prophet. Indeed, you did see a prophet. And this is really Jesus' evaluation of John, not just the evaluation of the crowd. So here we have how Jesus looks at John with great favor. He said that John was a prophet and then some. He was a special messenger. What kind of messenger was he? Well, we have to go back one book in your Bible, one book, to the prophet Malachi. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Think of this now. You know, you crossed over in your Bible when you turn back to that previous book. You crossed over probably a page that said the New Testament. But that didn't exist in the original way the scriptures are written. This is not, I'm going to write a book on this sometime. This is not two testaments. This is one Bible, one Bible. And you've got continuity between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, which is unmistakable. Chapter 3 and verse 1 of Malachi saying a messenger is coming. Look at chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. All the Gospels start out with this, with this fellow, John. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, and I will come and strike the earth with a curse. Think of Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. There, my friends, are cross links, chain links between Malachi and Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the Gospels, which tie this book together. And what we're learning here is that John the Baptist was not just a baptizer. In Old Testament language, he was a prophet. In fact, he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. The last of the Old Testament prophets. He was a special messenger. There's another portion of scripture that alludes to this, and you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it for you. It's in Isaiah chapter 40. In verse number 3, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Famous piece of Christmas music has those words in it, doesn't it? The Messiah. Wonderful. But Jesus, is, in his estimation of who John the Baptist is, is saying, look, yeah, he's a prophet. In fact, he's more than a prophet. He's a, he's a number one A-rated prophet. He's at the top of the stack. And here's the quote for, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's what John's ministry and mission was. And then Jesus carries on and says, in fact, John was the greatest man to ever live, not because he was wealthy and powerful, but because he was holy and dedicated to God. That's what makes greatness. He was a servant of God. If you would be great, you must be a servant, the greatest who ever lived. He carried out his mission faithfully. He was a prophet who prophet to God. He saw the fulfillment of what he had prophesied. So that's, that's kind of significant too, isn't it? 
Um, you know, the prophets in the Old Testament, they prophesied of stuff that they never saw happen. But here, John the Baptist is saying there's one coming, there's one coming, there's one coming, and what happened? He came right in front of his eyes, right in front of their faces. The Lord came in response in a preparation of that way. He had a greater office, and he had a greater privilege. Now, this doesn't diminish the Old Testament prophets. It just says that there was someone more significant than, he, than they now, the text also tells us, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So of all the people uh, of God who enter into and enjoy the kingdom of Christ, they will be even greater than John. How is that? Well, they won't have any sin, for one thing. Think about that. Think about that for a moment. The greatness of the greatest servants of God will pale in comparison to what will be possible in God's kingdom in terms of of service and seeing God's wonders, participating in the kingdom of God. You, my friends, if this text is to be taken literally, you, as lowly as you might feel yourself to be, will be greater than John the Baptist. That just tells you how um, how much headroom we have, you know what I mean by headroom, like we're here, and it's not like we can just improve like 5% or 10%, like way up there at the ceiling. That's, you know, we're down here. We're down here in the, you know, basement level three. God's going to elevate, glorify, honor, bring to purity, sanctification, to greatness, to glory, to power, to service his people to be even greater than John the Baptist. It's hard to explain, but I hope I've given you a little taste of it. They in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than he. Now, that's exalted thinking, but we have to come back down to earth. And Jesus says this in verse 12, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. There are a couple of ways people take this statement, including one way that says something like this. Aggressive people get into the kingdom because they take it. They're forcing their way into it. I don't take this view. Let me explain why. That idea of aggression, that idea of forcing their, your way into it, is not how one enters the kingdom. Let me just pause for a second. It does take resolve. It does take a kind of counting the cost mentality to become saved, to become a citizen of the kingdom. I'm not downplaying that, but I'm saying in this text it's not teaching us that if you just have enough resolve you'll force your way into that kingdom. You'll push open the door. It's not that at all. Um, what is it then? Well, let me, let me carry on. Uh, Luke chapter 16 and verse 16 complicates matters a little bit because uh, its wording is the idea of pressing in or forcing entry into it. But the problems with interpreting it this way are, are three. Again, You don't force your way into the kingdom. How do you get into the kingdom? 
Repent in faith. Repent and believe the gospel. That's how you come into the kingdom. Um, Again, there is a sense of resolve and determination that accompanies repentance. There's a sense of will. There's a sense of desire. I desire the pardon of God. I will to follow him. Yes, true. Notice also it says in verse number... Well, actually, there's, that's, that's another passage in Luke that I was mentioning, but not everyone is entering the kingdom. You know, Not everyone is entering it. Few do, but not all. And finally, the kingdom was not even inaugurated at this time. Okay? It wasn't even inaugurated at this time. Nobody actually entered it. You haven't even actually entered the kingdom. You've entered into citizenship in that kingdom, but you're waiting with, I hope, great patience to go into that kingdom. You must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. If you're not born again, you're not seeing it. And if you are born again, you will see it, but you have to wait for a moment or for a few years or until the Lord returns. Now, I think the correct understanding of the verse, the violent taking the kingdom by force, is in conjunction with the context. What has happened to John? He's the primary messenger of the kingdom until Jesus comes along. And what happened to him? They threw him into jail. I say they. You understand what I mean. Herod and Herodias and the officials that were complicit in his imprisonment. John the Baptist was in prison, the foremost announcer of the kingdom, thrown in jail for announcing the righteousness of the kingdom. If you want to be in that kingdom, your righteousness will have to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, not, you know, divorcing and remarrying because of your lust and all of that sort of stuff. The Pharisees were up against John and and Jesus, and they were up against the kingdom of God. The Sadducees were against him. They were also against Jesus, the other messenger of the kingdom. Their forefathers, Jesus said, killed the prophets What did those prophets preach? In large measure, they preached the kingdom of God. They said there's a great degradation in Israel now. You need to turn, repent, come back to the Mosaic Covenant, and there's coming a time in which the Lord will establish a kingdom on the earth, a kingdom of social and political and and economic impact, a kingdom of agrarian fruitfulness, a kingdom of peace where they will beat their swords into plowshares. But what did they do with those prophets? They killed them. I remember the Lord said that one time, you build, the, you build the tombs of the prophets, thus testifying that it was your fathers that killed them. You have a solidarity with them. Even still, like I'll just use one verse here in First Thessalonians chapter Two, verse 15, it says, or uh, 14, you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just as they did from the Judeans. The Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they do not please God and they are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So the forefathers killed those prophets in time past. Unconsciously or consciously, what the Jewish leaders were trying to do is take the kingdom away from the people of Israel. Are you with me? The violent 
like those that kill the prophets, those that throw John into prison, those kind of people are taking the kingdom away from people because they're shutting up the mouths of the people announcing the kingdom. They didn't want the kingdom so badly. They didn't want others to follow after Jesus so badly that they put him on a cross and killed him and said, we have no king but Caesar. That's the picture of what's going on. They were trying to take the kingdom away from people by force, withholding it from a nation, using their power to silence the messengers of the kingdom. They wanted no threat to their power, no threat to their propaganda, no threat to their wealth, no threat to their position. They cared nothing about the true things of God. Sounds similar, doesn't it, to our own day. They, the kingdom suffers violence and the violent take it by force. That's a negative verse. That's a negative interpretation, uh, if I can put it that way. It's not, you know, everybody's pressing into it. We don't get by pressing into it. We get into it by repentant faith, by humbly receiving the king. But the violent people, they take it away by force. Nothing would make them happier than to shut down the message of the kingdom, to shut down the churches, to shut down the Bible, to burn the Bible, to get rid of the scriptures, to get rid of the message of righteousness because it cramps their style. Instead, they want to be like Herod and marry a close relative. Sad. Verses 13 to 15, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So these verses now speak of John's ministry as a prophet. So John is one of those prophets that's being abused by the nation of Israel, the circumstances that 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 came about. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets. I don't I don't know if you grasp the significance of that, but I want you to. In other words, that's what ties the two Testaments together and makes them one Bible, among other things, of course. But it's a very strong tie. He's a transitional figure from the old era to the new era of the church. He is a transitional figure to Jesus. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John. This is speaking of the two parts of the law, of, the, of the, what we call the Old Testament, You have the Torah, the law. You have prophecies of Messiah in there. Uh, You know, Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me. Him you shall hear, Deuteronomy 18, 15, and and so on. And then the prophets themselves, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, and the minor prophets, all of them pointing back to the Mosaic Covenant and forward to the coming Messiah and to the coming kingdom. And John is the pinnacle of those prophets. And in fact, if, now this is an interesting if, verse 14, if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, has that puzzled you before? If the people were willing to receive the message of John the Baptist and in turn the message of Christ, then John would, in fact, have been the fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy. He would have been the forerunner of the Messiah and the kingdom would have begun somehow. I don't know how exactly, but I can imagine a way or two. But this hypothetical is actually a counterfactual. One of my favorite little pet ideas. There it comes again, a counterfactual. I wrote on that in my THM thesis. But this counterfactual 
is counter the facts because it's not true that he was Elijah. When the leaders of Israel came to John and John's gospel and they asked him, are you that prophet? And he said, no. Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. I am not Elijah. Very clear the text of scripture. The nation as a whole was not willing to receive John nor his message nor the one to whom he pointed. Of course, a number of people did, thankfully, witnessed by those who went out to John for his baptism and those who followed Jesus. But remember in John chapter 6, verse 66, many of his disciples left and did not follow him anymore. They left him. Okay, so what's happening here is Jesus is saying, if you would have received this, this would in fact have been Elijah, but knowing that they wouldn't receive it, he sent a pre-messenger in the spirit and power of Elijah, who looked a lot like Elijah according to the prophecies, but he was not that one who would come ultimately in the end time. We believe that that actually will come about again during the tribulation period when uh, Elijah will come and and carry out this kind of ministry. So, in all of this, Jesus is saying to the crowd now, you, you, you thought about John the Baptist, you thought about his ministry, the kingdom is suffering violence, people are taking it away from you. Are you listening? Verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's a real call to spiritual listening. Open up your ears, my friends, is what he's saying. Open up your ears to hear the way of God and not the ways of the world. Many of us have our ears tuned to the news, tuned to the politics of the day. We're right right there on top of it. How about tuned to this? Tuned to be able to see things through the grid of Scripture and looking at the world situation and being able to pass by all of the foolishness that goes on out there because we know what this is, the grid of Scripture affecting us, how we hear, what we see, how we think. All right, we have just a couple minutes left. I think we can touch uh, the next three verses or four here quickly. Verse 16, Uh, we read this already, so I won't read it again. But what's happening here is that Jesus says, this generation is like children. Mm, That sounds kind of bad, doesn't it? You people are like immature kids. And the illustration that he gives is kind of two ends of a spectrum. We played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We mourned for you, and you didn't lament. So something on the happy side and something on the sad side. And... So what he's saying is, you know, you're like kids playing in the marketplace and they're trying to come up with a game to play and they're pretending one thing and the kids, or they suggest that and the kids don't want that. And they say, well, let's do this other thing. No, the kids don't want it. You can't make them happy. Nothing you do will make them pleased. And the illustration is, expanded out into the real-life situation in verse 16 and 7, or uh, sorry, 18 and 19. 18 and 19. Four, here's the explanation of the children playing the flute and mourning. 
John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. So John is over here on the, we'll call it on the sad side. He's very rough, very ascetic, out in the wilderness. Who knows how, what, what structure he lived in, if any, if he lived in a cave or whatever, as he's pictured sometimes. He, he, he has a very strange diet. Um, he doesn't have, you know, remember that he was a Nazarite from the womb? never cut his hair, never drank the fruit of the vine, never ate the fruit of the vine. A very, you know, a guy like a monk, a picture or somebody, you know, out there, so extreme, negative. He's, they say, this guy's so crazy, he has a demon. Okay, Pharisees, nation of Israel, you don't like that approach? God in his wisdom sent someone else named Jesus, and he came, and uh, he was eating, and he was drinking. You know, he did not have a Nazarite vow, Jesus. In fact, he turned water into wine at Cana in Galilee at the wedding. He went and ate with tax collectors and sinners. John didn't do that. John was like a hermit almost, but he interacted with people in terms of preaching and baptizing. But Jesus was different than that. He wasn't on the sad side. He was on the enjoy God's good gifts and be with God's, you know, be with people, God's people, be with sinners, tax collectors, try to share the gospel with them, preach to them, heal them. And what do they say about him? He's just a glutton and a wine bibber, a drunk. They couldn't be pleased. They are what we call implacable, obdurate, could not be satisfied, simply refused to be persuaded. But they had no excuses. They could, uh, you know, you would think that they'd either like their potatoes whole or mashed. But they didn't like either. So what are you going to do? You know, I know you're thinking of some other way to prepare potatoes, but you get the idea. You have, you have, you, you can have John, or you can have Jesus. You can have the ascetic, the the harsh religious kind of approach, or you can have the approach of Jesus. Nothing's wrong with either one of those, as far as John and Jesus implemented them. But these Pharisees and people of Israel just simply could not be satisfied. Implacable. In fact, they accused Jesus, as I alluded to before, of having a demon as well. So what do they want? They refuse the divine message of the kingdom. In the end, Jesus says, look at the last part of verse 19, wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, we would say the proof is in the pudding. The fruit shows the root. A good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. That's what he's saying. The outcome of the Pharisees' behavior was going to be that the kingdom was taken away. The outcome of those who received John and Jesus' message was the salvation and eventual entry into the kingdom. Two different fruits, two different outcomes, two different kinds of children. Uh, some of your Bibles may have wisdom is proven by her works. It means exactly the same thing. The word's a little different in the Greek, but it's no big deal. The point is the same. The outcome of Jesus and John's teaching will become evident. 
like the devotional in the bulletin this morning. Remember that? Did you read it? When that tough old guy said, look at my life, Jesus changed it. The atheist who came into town spouting off his academic atheism couldn't answer that transformation because the transformation was not on the basis of natural law. The transformation was on the basis of a supernatural transformation, a change that occurred in that old man's life that made him into a saint instead of a sinner. The fruit shows wisdom is justified by her children. The outcome will make it clear uh, as we ought to think of ourselves. The outcome of our lives kind of makes clear where we're at, doesn't it? Uh, what, what our lives look like, what our profession of faith looks like. If the profession of faith you have transformed you good, if it doesn't transform, then it shows the root of where it came from. In any case, let's pause there, 1119. We'll pick up the next time. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness this evening to allow us to look at this text of Scripture. Lord, it's a sad thing to have to say that the kingdom of heaven was taken by violence, by violent ones who exercised violence on your messengers, killed John, killed Jesus, killed the prophets, and many ministers of the gospel since then. Lord, thank you for the time of peace that we have here, that in many of our lands today, that ministers do not have to fear being put in prison. Bible translators don't have to fear being burned at the stake, but many were. And that pattern of continual opposition to the kingdom of God has continued down through the ages. Help us to be announcers of that kingdom, even if the cost is high. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're just after 7.15, my friends. May God bless you. Have a good night, and we'll see you again soon. Prayer meeting Wednesday. Prayer all the time. The door is open to heaven, and you can pray whenever. Call me if you want, and we pray over the phone together. Meet. We can pray in person at the church office uh, or whatever. Uh, we'd love to do that. May God bless you and keep you. Amen.